What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Support for this season of Assembly comes from the Improv Asylum in Boston, Massachusetts, and New York, New York. Consequence of Sound in Chicago, Illinois, and New York, New York. And Catherine Beckett in Brooklyn, New York. If you'd like to support Assembly, visit our website, www.theassemblypodcast.com, or you can email me directly, theassemblypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, we're about to start. Here we go. Modern School of Film presents Assembly, a look at what brings us together in parts. My name is Robert Malazzo, and I'll bring you what I see, what I hear, and what I learn. Now, let's start the assembly. surgery eve here on assembly but it's not the kind of surgery i thought i'd be having well i'm not having it i just found out that david cross is having it 
needs to recorrect some initially corrective eye surgery or something that he really needed to have over a year ago, maybe longer, and that this second procedure will either lead to another devastating failure or allow him to not wear glasses anymore. Personally, I don't know which is worse. I don't mean to sound glib, but David simply hasn't told me anything concrete. It's a bit of a leitmotif thus far. That, and tea, and phone alarms, and muscle relaxers. His, not mine. This season on Assembly, I'm here with David Cross for a week to understand his process of creating a new stand-up act, which will include a lab-like approach to new material in front of an intimate audience in a Brooklyn basement. I completely understand why David's been open yet protective of certain parts of his work and how he does it, but I feel like I'm finally breaking through just a bit. I had this notion that to best understand his current process, I need to go back through his creative roots, starting with his first ever stand-up gig in Atlanta, Georgia, and on today's part of Assembly, onto Boston Mass and his breaking into the booming comedy scene there, late 80s, early 90s, which to me, again, he redefined. I think that's what's so fascinating about David Cross. He's always making a scene within a scene, Atlanta or Boston, elsewhere. So within his scene making, scene stealing, there's a turn to be found. There always is in our lives, in our work, but one definitely comes out of the other. So to hear what David begot, let's hear what he begat. Do not try that at home. (laughs) Once more into the breach, Romans. But first to Boston. Here's part two of the assembly. My old schools. What's your name and what do you do? It's David Cross, um, cosplayer. There's this thing in the last show I did, and I ripped this whole other concept. I was like, I got to remember that, and I got to go work on this when I get done with this, and after I go grocery shopping, and after I make the stew. Is the stew a ritual? Too? No, that'd be too much stew. I'm doing a lot of sets, and I, that'd be just way too much stew. I could give some to the stew list, I suppose, but... Uh, No, the stew is so the family and myself and the kid have stuff to eat while I'm recovering from the eye surgery because it's pretty gnarly for the first three days. In fact, the first day you get it and you just go to sleep. You go home and go to sleep for 24 hours. Like Literally, you're on drugs and it's pretty crazy. You said this is the first batch of public stuff. Mm -hmm. Are you taking what you've learned in the batch thus far along with the ride or will you stop and kind of do a deus ex machina on everything? You like my Greek or my Latin? <laughs> uh, yes. There's some things that I, either I just don't have the confidence in or they're not as fun to me, so I don't want to take up precious stage time by doing them, but I need to do them. That's the work. That's one facet of the work. It's, like, it's almost like sourdough bread. There's always like a, a couple bits from the prior set that is like the set expands with every show, and when I'm touring, I'm doing 75, 80 shows, so... You know, the show at the end is wildly different than the beginning because I've dropped bits and bits have expanded and all that stuff. So some of the bits that I dropped, I'm revisiting and I I like them and I want and they work, but I just need to work on them and kind of do them for almost like doing scales, practice, you know. The last three shows I've been like, all right, I've got to do the um, libtards thing. I've got to do it, got to do it. But I just get a little bored, and I'm having so much fun with these new I- other new ideas that have popped up since I started this, you know. And then I'm just like, oh, I want to want to work on other stuff. Can you over tweak? Yeah, I mean, if if you belabor a point, um, a lot of this too is about me getting to the idea and and trying to get rid of as many you knows and ums, and it's kind of like and. I mean, I'm I'm allowing myself the luxury of that now, and these, the next 
20 shows are going to be still pretty loose. They'll get less loose as we go on, but I give myself, you know, 10, 15 shows of complete looseness. And then... Oh, sorry. Spam risk? No, that's... Uh, I have to take my meds. Okay. So a couple more. Um... Who are the guys and gals in Boston that you were hanging with or really kind of like eyeballing? Just like in my little clique, and it all bled over, you know, but they were just distinctive different types of comedy. You know, at Catch, it was like me and Janine Garofalo and Louis C.K. and Mark Marin and... Uh, and Jonathan Groff, and, and just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, there are dozens. It, you know, all went on to do really amazing things, and, and uh, some are writer-producers and don't do stand-up that much anymore. But Is the key access and allowance and spots on the bill? Like, was it the Petri dish that the talent had? It was just a, a permissive atmosphere to do shit. And that's the club owner, and that's the audience, and I don't know what the chicken or the egg is, you know, what came first, but it, it was an amazing scene. Yeah. both bike messengers. Did you know you were both that? And also, I was demoted, by the way. I was a shit bike messenger. I was demoted to a walking messenger. <laughs> and David was also mostly a walking messenger. Uh, because in those days, in Boston, you walked paper between law firms before email and stuff. So he worked at Palmer and Dodge. I worked at ASAP. And we would walk around together a lot. What the hell do you do well? Uh, I would say almost nothing. I would say <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm chatty. Chatty. I chat. I'm ve- I got the gift of gab. I also... Um, that's it. I think you're awesome in every way. Well, you are. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Janine Garofalo. I am a stand-up comic. Where was your first gig? Periwinkles in Providence, Rhode Island, in the arcade, one of the country's oldest malls. Periwinkles no longer is there, by the way. Did you close it out or no? Uh, no, no, it kept going for a while. Uh, it actually just went very well. And I think there's something about sometimes somebody's authenticity works very well. Because it was my first time, you know, I mean, I, I'm nervous. I'm scared. And also I would be very upfront about how scared I was. I had written some material on my arm, like a cheat sheet. That, and that wasn't a gag, but it was perceived as such by the audience. Because it was real, it worked. Now, I then proceeded to tank it almost consistently for years after with a couple of reprieves here and there, which would keep me going. Although even though I tanked it, I, I, I blindly kept pushing forward because that's one of the great things about being young. You're so dumb. <laughs> You're like, no, I can do it. I'll do it. This, this will happen. I started doing open mics my junior year and I would drive into Boston to try and get on open mics there. And also, like I said, I had no other marketable skills. And uh, that is where I met David. When did you first meet him? Do you remember the moment? I do. He and Laura Keitlinger, who were good friends from Emerson, did an open mic at Play It Again Sam's. So I think I just inserted myself into their world. Immediately wanted to be them, (laughs) wanted to be as smart and funny as them, and wanted to hang around with them. But also, to this day, to this day, I, I consider it a triumph if David laughs at something I say. <laughs> it can be withering. His, you know, he's better now. But I kind of sum it up like a, I'll say, have gone to see a movie and start talking about the movie, and I'll say, "Oh, you like that?" 
Do you know what I mean? Like that. So that, and that still, that is, was the basis of our friendship. But also, he's one of the kindest people underneath that. You know what I mean? Like, genuinely kind and caring and does not suffer fools gladly, but especially back then and especially if he had been drinking. You know, like, when you're younger and new, you can be petulant. It can be off-putting on stage. It can be, especially if it's not going your way. But if you were to take the time to listen to David, the audience even knows that they're seeing something different um, and interesting. What was the audience reaction to David in Boston? It, intermittent, like with anyone who's doing something different. Luckily, Catch Rising Star in Cambridge sort of curated a, a different type of audience who wanted a different kind of comedy. They're not quite sure of the price tickets yet, but that's Emerson College. But our next meeting is a very talented performer. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, he just claimed that he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr. David Cross. Okay, a few quick impersonations that I've been working on. Okay, see if you can guess who this guy is right here. Uh, Tony, Jeannie, uh, Dr. Bellows? <laughs> that's right, that's Bill Daly. He played Major Healy on the I Dream of Jeannie show. Okay, here's another um, one for you. See if you can guess who this guy is right here. Uh, Bob, Emily, uh, what's for dinner? Right. <laughs> well, that was Bill Daly. He, uh, he played Howard Burton on the Bob Moore show. You know, and then with Dave's cross comedy, David really brought a lot of people together to do that. Comics that weren't doing as well in the mainstream Boston clubs. And also, everybody idolized him. When I would be in Boston to do stand-up, I would go see it. I think I maybe did a bit part a couple of times in a sketch by the time cross comedy was really up and running. I just was a fan of it. What's cross comedy? We were sort of a group of people that formed a sketch comedy group uh, that was dubbed. We didn't choose this name, but there was a booker at a club, the Cash Rising Star in Cambridge, who said, David Cross is the head of this. You'll be called cross comedy. We all kind of hated it, but he, this guy was insistent that we call it that. So it's kind of stuck. And like most names of things, it kind of fades away. And it is what it is. Because he was sort of the focal guy. He was just such a funny, charismatic, interesting thinker and performer. And it was really, you know, he was the head, he was the leader of the group. His heyday was like 1990 to 92. But uh, it was about anywhere from like six to 10 or 12 of us at any time. We would kind of expand and contract because there were so many funny people who wanted to contribute. So we probably got bigger than we should have. It was like a collective almost. That a little bit created the inevitable, like I'm not on stage enough. I wish I was, you know. It was tricky, but it was an amazing time. It was mostly doing it because we wanted to do something different than what was happening in this comedy clubs. We wanted to do something just besides stand-up. We wanted to comment a little bit on what we thought was happening in the stand-up clubs in Boston. We just wanted to put on a show. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Jonathan Groff, and I'm a television writer, producer, showrunner, uh, Blackish, uh, Happy Endings, with Scrubs, um, How I Met Your Mother. I, my real main thing in television writing was I was a head, head writer at Late Night with Conan O'Brien back in the 90s. And that kind of came out of my origins as a stand-up comedian in Boston, which is how I know David Cross. There's a little bit of an origin story for Mr. Show in this. 
first of all, Catch a Rising Star was a bit of a North Star club. It opened in 1987. Robin Horton, who was the booker, gave David a night to host. We got the idea of like, let's have the stand-up showcase that David is hosting turn into a sketch show before the audience even knows necessarily that that was happening. So there'd be a good lineup of seven or eight, 10 comics maybe, short sets, don't burn the crowd out. And then one of the ways we would kind of bend that and comment a little bit on comedy was sometimes the last comic would actually be the first sketch of the show. Just the way a sketch on the end of one sketch on Mr. Show would be the beginning of another sketch in a way that I always thought was really cool. And not they weren't the first to do that, but they did it very, very well. And that was the thing I think that, that maybe Bob Odenkirk was doing that before in his stuff. But he certainly was respect susceptible to it. It was certainly something cross comedy was doing. Thank you, host Jonathan Groff. Hey, now you know. Now we're cooking. Tim Nacrado, huh? Boston is an unbelievable town for colleges. I uh, I just turned thirty, so I'm thinking about this because I'm thirty years old now, and there are just so many college students. Even in the summers, it seems like the average age of people in this city is like nineteen years old. There's even a store in Boston. We have such a college town called Greek Central. It's about three blocks from here, right in Kenmore Square, that calls itself a fraternity and sorority merchandise showroom. Yeah, I think we should do the hazing room over in Mauve. This would uh, create the proper ambiance in which to apply the butt stick. <laughs> the butt stick reference, folks. Sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but... Uh, what are you doing? Uh, I'm, just, uh, I'm just getting sort of trying to warm up the crowd. Well, for... they're all warmed up. We're ready for sketches. And quite frankly, I don't think we can do an entire show based on your college career. Well, I would never, ever, ever, ever think about doing an entire show based about college. No way! No way! No way! In 1971, a eugenics program was started at Stanford University where the sperm of Nobel Prize laureates would be used to produce a race of superhumans. However, a misaddressed sperm sap who was erroneously sent to the herpetology department and injected into an iguana. As the years passed and he grew up, his superior intellect and ability to control household pests won him a full scholarship to cross college. He became known as Lizard! Boy! <laughs> Wait, were were you Lizard Boy? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> well, I like I said, I I took my cue from the zeitgeist that Dave created. I gleaned from David that kind of like counteractive force. That kind of was the spirit of cross comedy. I think I pulled that element from Dave and what he did in Boston. And that influenced my choice to never become successful. (laughs) No, but I did become successful. But I definitely like issued a lot of uh, mainstream work at that time. And I think that came from uh, from Dave. Uh, What's your name and what do you do? It's H. John Benjamin. Yeah, sure. I'm H. John Benjamin. I, uh, I don't know what I do. I don't know. Let me introduce myself. I am Lizard Boy! <laughs> I'm Howie, captain of the football team. And this is my main squeeze, Tina. Pleased to meet your acquaintance, Tina. You walk in beauty like the night, and all that is best and bright meets in your aspect and in your eyes. What a geek! 
people. Oh, oh no, I'm highly allergic to bees. I'll swell. I am too, and I'm swelling. Don't worry, I'll handle this. Stay perfectly still, Tina. Lizard boy, I was wrong about you. It was nothing. Lizard boy, you're okay. You were a member of Cross Comedy. <laughs> yes, it was like a country club uh, environment, but only Jews allowed. <laughs> Cross Comedy was sort of gave his foray into the world of sketch. I think it started as kind of a secret. But like as the show went on, it kind of became popular. In, in Boston. I think when I first was introduced to it, I was a, you know, like I was an audience member. It was the first time I'd ever seen in a comedy club the, an attempt to do high concept material. The audience wasn't expecting some of the stuff that happened. Those kind of surprises were also very much, I think, like what David liked to do, kind of twist expectations from the audience. The rebelliousness against traditional forms of stand-up and where stand-up took place, like clubs that was i think david's you know stamp or imprimatur or you know a uh, style that he wanted is it imprimatur or imprimatur like what Imp- <laughs> i think it's impo- imposter <laughs> okay good that's settled next business who the hell let you into cross comedy <laughs> <laughs> catch a rising star uh, in harvard square they had an open mic i spent a lot of time at the bar there just watching him Dave. Sometimes the only person watching them was they were cleaning up and maybe a few comics who were like left at the bar. Uh, no audience. This comedian, Mike Lee, who is a writer for Cross Comedy, came up to us and said, you guys are funny and, and brought us to Dave. I mean, he didn't bring us to Dave like Dave was in a chair. With a scepter. <laughs> right. With a, he, he just said, you guys should come to a writing meeting and pitch ideas. Who is you guys? My name is Sam Cedar. I am a political talk show host and commentator. I don't know. I don't think it's fair to comedians to call myself that, but I, I, I'm moderately humor, humorous. How's that? The Majority Report with Sam Cedar. And I get the feeling you've been cheated. What is your relationship to David Cross? I, I consider myself uh, a friend, at arm's length, of course, and a fan. Some of what I do, I learned in some way from him or was influenced by him. I, you know, I was hanging out at, um, at Catch, and I remember being very struck by his work because it really, in many respects, was sort of a combination of what I perceived of Lenny Bruce and Kaufman. And I think there was a couple of jokes, but the one that really stands out for me is when he uh, he had a joke about people insisting he was Jewish and that he said he was going to raise his kid Amish and that he wasn't going to be Amish, but the kid was. And it was something like, I can't remember, like the kid said like, daddy, I want to watch TV. And he said, no, you can't because you're Amish. But daddy can watch TV because he's not Amish. Now go back to churning butter or something. And it stuck with me. That type of social critique, uh, I remember thinking like, okay, this is this is the, this is where I got to be. Sam was enamored with Dave. You know, Dave was kind of a flashpoint figure. Sam wanted to impress Dave. 
because uh, that was meaningful at that time. John is a pathological liar. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but I can tell you that presenting anything that John Benjamin says without a deep and comprehensive vetting is putting yourself in all sorts of jeopardy, not the least of which legal. Oh, without a doubt. Yes. I definitely did. Uh, I think it was just his sheer talent. He was inspired. He was political. He was uh, critiquing. He could do characters. And he was also fearless. Boston could be a very hostile place. Somebody who wore glasses, <laughs> frankly. You know what I mean? Like, and I grew up in Worcester, uh, not terribly different. And like, I mean, just literally, like, I remember doing stand up at this uh, Chinese restaurant on uh, Route One, like making a reference to a book. And hearing a guy five feet away from me in the audience turn to his buddy and go, I told you he was a fag. I was like, oh, my God, I just said the name of a book. <laughs> I almost created a problem. I mean, it was I mean, Cross had guts. He did not. I, I think a lot of it was like he did not care or at least he projected like, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And if you don't come with me on this, that's your problem. Here's one of our first sketches I remember was a character I did who was a guy named Kenny Nichols. And I'd be introduced as like a guy who didn't usually work at Catch Rising Star, but he was coming over to do a set from across the river. And I would go hard as a Boston-y guy, backwards baseball cap, like gym shorts, Patriots t-shirt. And I would do my best slash worst Boston accent and do the most fucking offensive, you know, fucking, you fucking retarded, you know, like do, you know, which was... Not that dissimilar from some dudes who were working the clubs up there now. And so I think David was on the back mic and would start mocking me and calling me out on the, some of the dumb shit, sort of racist, offensive, homophobic, whatever it was, stuff that I was saying. And I would kind of get embarrassed off the stage, pretend to be embarrassed off the stage. This guy is now being called out and we're breaking the fourth wall. And, and that was the sort of first sketch. The parts of the, uh, I was going to say mass hole, but I mean that affectionately. It was a mass hole. I, that term did not exist back then, but he was a mass hole. Did you feel any parts of this was like making fun of your audience too heavily? A little bit, perhaps, but I don't think we cared. We were commenting and throwing down a gauntlet a little bit. There were some comics who were like, I think you're making fun of me. Fuck you, for sure. We got that. And there was a couple of comedians that we would kind of like circle each other warily. But again, nobody was that bent out of shape about it. Did people outside of Boston know what cross comedy was doing? There was enough people who were like, who would come into Boston to, to do work or just to check in, or they were from there, and then they would go back down to New York and they would say like, hey, there's this funny thing going on. I know John Stewart had been in Boston and had seen cross comedy. That later ended up in helping me get a job there. And David actually had a short stint as a writer at John Stewart show. Janine Garofalo, who was a friend from Boston, seeing us and then putting in a word and I think helping David get seen by Ben Stiller, which was David's first real break. What was the feedback from SNL? Lauren was maybe supposed to be there and didn't come. Maybe some cast members came, I think, possibly. Nothing happened out of it. It was sort of our last big hurrah that summer of 1992, as I recall. In a career for many of you, present company included, of great success, were you ever melancholy about all these misses? I used to have a saying that I used to share with Grant Taylor, uh, who was one of the writers and, and performers in uh, Cross Comedy. God forbid anything work out for anybody ever. I think we were disappointed that nothing happened that summer of 92. And then I think right after that, David went out, stuff started to happen for him in LA. And I think he was gone basically. And the group wasn't going to, the center wasn't going to hold. We weren't going to stay together with 
without him. There was probably some people who wish like, oh, why didn't people do more for each other after? But I think people did do a lot. David did stuff for me because he told his manager, Tim Sarkis, if you're looking for somebody else to work with, Tim's been my manager for since then, you know? And I think it was, again, like everybody needed to go their separate ways. But I also think as people get older, the sort of acrimony tends to recede. Remember like, oh, we did something good and it was cool. Your historian side of your brain, your mind is like a steel trap about this. <laughs> Pretty good about remembering so I was a Jeopardy champ, so I have a... Anyway. Were you bummed at all when David left? I mean, even, again, respectfully bummed. Uh, for sure. I think, like, he carried the energy. That changed, yeah, changed it dramatically. He was sort of the spiritual guru, um, but not not in the way he behaved. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so when he left, it's sort of like, uh, yeah, everybody tries to get sitcoms. It, it destroyed the group. <laughs> <laughs> but that served, that served its place. It's... Definitely a very fun time. Like I don't, yeah, probably one of the most fun times I had in, in comedy. It came full circle and then it left. Thank God. You sound a little happy it ended. Yeah, there was a sense that it's run its course, but it was like the end of an era. It was like completely about how can I be super funny? That community click, you know, amoeba, whatever we want to call a gaggle of comics you know a murder of comics i perceived it as a as a school it was mean <laughs> you know, you know and, it, and there were times where it was intense and you know it was incredibly gratifying to have people go like this is good you know and to work on it that's been my experience in the past you know 25 30 years in anything uh genuinely creative it ran through cross comedy creatives come together they intersect but the reason why it's good and electric and interesting and dynamic is because the participants are on a trajectory in their career, not not in terms of like professional success, but on like an artistic trajectory. It intersects. But if it's going to be genuinely interesting, all the people need to be moving through their process. And invariably, it means at one point as a thing grows there's a divergence and that moment is over. It may have been a little bit premature for cross comedy, but that's, that's what happens. Schools. Schools within scenes, scenes within assemblies. But there's no way these are always so funny. After all, how would we tell the difference? What is so funny if all we do is laugh? So I want to know more. I'm about to lose David to eye surgery, so when he goes, I'm going to need two new dance partners. Closer ones. I just hope I'm not dancing with myself. <laughs> but now this. Hi again, it's me, Rob. I want to take a minute and tell you about two new online classes I'm offering at the Modern School of Film. One is our Culture Club, which is a weekly online get-together of folks from around the world who love movies and TV and things that move, and we talk about what they're seeing, how they're seeing it, and what they think they saw. Each week I suggest something for the group to watch, and then we meet and share thoughts. It's just that easy. And fun. Oh, and come as you are. There's no experience needed. Just need your big brains, your eyes, and your thoughts. The other class is our Creators Lab. It's a weekly online gathering of filmmakers, writers, producers, podcasters, where they share their work and get feedback from me and, more importantly, each other. 
If you want to join but you don't have anything to show, just come and share your thoughts. Those are just as important. It's a super cool group of folks who gather. They don't bite tons. They just love to get together and share their work and talk about how that work can get out into the larger world. You do not have to make a living as a creator to join. You just have to want to share and take part in one of my favorite things, the dialogue. Visit www.modernschooloffilm.com for all dates and details on the classes. And there you can email me directly with any questions you might have. And I tell you right now, they're all good questions. So check it out. And I hope to see you there. Now, back to the assembly. Do you prefer later sets or earlier sets? If I'm going up in a show, like it's one show from like 8 to 10.30, I'd prefer going up later. If I'm doing my own show, I much prefer earlier but not super early that's the worst uh the worst is like a six o'clock seven o'clock show and the and that happens sometimes because they have a dj or something you know techno night that has to come in part of it is and i'm talking about when i'm on the road a lot of these smaller places you play you're at you know the double tree inn or the hilton or whatever and they close the kitchen and the bar at 11 and i've literally dozens of times over the years finished an encore Good night, and grabbed my stuff, ran out, gotten in the car that's backstage, and bolted back to the hotel so I can get something to eat. So I'm not just eating potato chips. That's happened so many times. So I prefer to I prefer like an eight o'clock show, and then I should be off by roughly ten ten fifteen, off 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 stage, get out of the building, and get back to the hotel and order some food and a bottle of wine. Is rest important to you? Um, I don't need as much as other people, I don't think. I, I, but, I, yeah, you know, um, these shows are a little different because there's so much downtime in between. But I will be tired. As you know, I have a kid. I'm up at, like, 7.15, and um, and it's not like I'm up and hanging out. I'm up with a two-and-a-half-year-old who's running around. has to be tended to. I have to make her breakfast, and who knows what will set her off if she starts screaming. Hopefully everything's good. But, you know, it's, it's mentally... Inf- exhausting as well you know and uh but also tomorrow i have i have to leave at eight forty-five to get to the doctors which it's an hour subway because unfortunately i'm on the seat line and the seat train sucks so and I'm, I'm i'm definitely anxious about it a little nervous about it i don't feel like talking about it. are you a private person yeah i suppose there's an irony to the fact that i go out on stage and talk about my life and these things and I make jokes about things that happened or, or uh, within my personal life or um, family. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm private as much as I am much less social than I used to be. I used to be a very social person and I used to go out all the time and had lots and lots and lots and lots of friends. And I have less of that now. I think I, I don't know if it's just part of the aging process or just settling or I'm just less interested in going out and seeing bands and hanging out with 12 people, having dinner. Not that it's a bad thing or I don't do it. I just don't do it nearly as much as I used to. And I enjoy it when I do, but uh, it, it's, it's more about not being as social than being private. I can't be private just by the nature of what I talk about on stage. I mean, I do, you know, I talk about some embarrassing moments and things that I'm ashamed of and I'm kind of an open book. I don't lie. I don't even exaggerate. Uh, I think less private and, and more antisocial. <laughs> oh, uh, I gotta take my medicine, which I don't have on me. Oops. 
my name is Amber Tamblin, and I am a um, artist, writer, director, all kinds of things. <laughs> Talking about families of artists, rumor has it you're married to an artist. This is just a rumor. You could just say he's married to a 10, because that's a fact. I would say like 11. <laughs> oh, we got the same thing. Look at us. Wow, that looks amazing. Yes. Thank you so much. I love the I love the idea of like sort of you know how things come together. David's so funny too because he's like I don't know what to tell him like he you know it's uh I know he's stupid that way. <laughs> I love him to death, but I told him that I said it's going to be very interesting. He's like it's not. I'm like you don't get to say it is actually because you're you. You're the one inside. David does not like people to see how the sausage is made. He wants to serve them the best fucking sausage they've ever had. And then when they go, how did you make this? He gets to say it's a you know secret family recipe. That's his way of doing it. So it's always interesting for me to, to watch that process. I don't know if David told you about his index card drawer. So he's got a drawer that he's had in the same drawer in our dresser since before we met. Now the whole dresser's mine. Like I get all the drawers except this one drawer. You know, before that it was his, they were his drawers, and then I moved in, and I was like, "Get your shit out of my drawers. This is my house now. I'm the man of this house." Um, but he's got this drawer with just little like notes of things when he thinks of a joke, whatever it is, and. Sometimes they're spread all over the house and I collect them and put them back in his drawer. You know, and he'll just kind of go through them and it could be something that's like three years old. And he's like, oh, that's a funny idea. I think that's also sort of where his sketch comes from. That's what he and Bob used to do, um, to think of great sketches. It's just ideas. They started there and then you try them out on stage and some work, some don't. What's it like when he's in these processes? Like, could you blindfold yourself and know that David's developing something? He's depressed, I think, when he's not doing, when he's not creating, which I think is for most artists. But he really enjoys um, the process of it, and he likes setting up all of these little shows for months and months and just sort of playing around on stage and finding what sticks and comes home. And, you know, it's real work for him. It's like homework. I mean, he has to spend like a couple hours before sort of looking over his notes. He has everything written up and annotated. Um, and then he goes through and sort of thinks about which are the best pieces he wants to keep. It's a real process. Yeah. It is a very real process. Between having a two and a half year old and a geriatric senior citizen dog who's half blind, you know, there's constantly something that needs to be done. But for me, I love cooking for David. Um, I like cooking a lot. My mom is a big cook. And um, I like to be able to make sure that he's feeling sort of comfortable and supported while doing the work. I think that's all any of us can ask for in our partners. Even if it's just like, I'll come down to his office and say, hey, do you want me to make you a cup of tea? He likes his afternoon, you know, English tea. Um, it's very British that way. 2% milk. He doesn't fuck with almond milk or any of that. And he'll know if I put whole milk in there or something else. He can taste it. But also, um, how long to steep the tea. That's a whole thing. Which is a real thing for real tea, you know, for the British. If you fuck up a pot of tea, that says a lot about you. It does. Give a little boilerplate on living with an artist. I think it's a very special thing. And I, you know, I had boyfriends before David who were also artists, but they were not who he is. He's very singular and he's very special. And I know he doesn't think that sometimes, but I think there's also something extraordinary about living with the tenacious humor and also the extreme darkness of a stand-up comedian. They swing between highs and lows um, and luckily for me David never I'm never the butt of the low. If I'm upset, if I'm depressed about something, David is the only one that can say something really dark 
and funny that can pull me out of that energy. Um, I love being with somebody that is that complex. What's the difference between complicated and complex? Complicated is definitely, I think, a little bit more of a pejorative in that sense, but that's exactly what I mean. I don't, uh, you know, our relationship is not easy. This has not been an easy 12 years, and I don't know what kind of intimacy is is easy for anybody. And part of doing that work to make a relationship last that long is to be as introspective and as vulnerable as you can with the other person so that you can get to what the deeper love is. You know, my parents have been married for like 35 years and, and I see them do that. And I, but I also just see from the outside how difficult that is and that you kind of look and go, well, is that gonna be me? Just bickering with my husband all the time about whatever. And I think we're, we've taken a conscious effort in our personal lives to make sure that we are not feeling like uh, that we're just married to be married because it's easy, um, but then also not applying the pressure all the time and not making it feel like it's constantly gotta be romance 24-7. And I think that's one of the reasons we're, we've been together for almost 12 years. Would you say he's private? Would you sharpen it to guarded? Would you... I don't think he's a private person. I think he's very guarded. That's a good word. I think a lot of it for him is, you know, protecting his his family, but also protecting his integrity. He, he never feels comfortable being the guy if someone's like, hey, will you, uh, you know, will you call um, the head of Netflix and put a good word in for our show or something like that? He just, he can be a very sensitive person. One of the biggest secrets about David, he's probably one of the most sensitive men I've ever known next to my father. His sensitivity manifests a lot in his his rage and his ability to talk about things that are uncomfortable and to put them in sort of a context that is more universally understood as far as comedy is concerned. But, you know, in his personal life, he is incredibly um, tuned into um, his own darkness, his own space inside. Within him lies a deep empathy, which is so interesting because I, I you know, I think that that's where he's able to access his anger and his anger towards people who are not that way, who are not empathetic or who lie. Um, that's the other thing is he's one of the most trustworthy, honest people I've ever met. I told him he'd be a bad poker player, yeah. Yeah, he actually is a bad poker player. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I think he does come off condescending sometimes. I think that's very true. He knows it's true. He'd be the first to tell you. Just sometimes it's a mechanism, a way to access his anger, which I think, you know, all of it, and I've told him this, but I think all of that, the reason he's such a brilliant stand-up comedian very much stems from um, the emotional abuse he suffered at the hands of his father, his own dad, uh, who was a con man, or who is a con man, he's still alive. He's still alive. He actually lives here in New York. I don't think he and David have spoken in like 30 years. How do you know he's here? Because I know where, he, we know where he lives, we know, you know, and I, it, it, he went, he and his two sisters went through, and his mother went through so much with his dad who was very much a liar and sort of was not great in a lot of ways and was not always a great dad either. That's kind of, I think, the delicate balance of for stand-up comedians, I imagine for them, is that they have to find, they have to find that way in and it's dangerous and it's not good, but um, we're a family of lunatics. I have no idea. It was delicious. Yeah. Yes. To check when you get a Thank second.
My name is Wendy Cross. I am David's sister. I own a food truck business. David was always just fucking wicked smart. I mean, he's got to be borderline genius. I was average intelligence, and but when we would spar, if we had a difference of opinion of something, I mean, he just smashed my argument down in about three seconds every single time. So, And then I would think about it if I had enough time because he was just so quick. It would take, you know, a whole, probably about a 24 hour period. And then I'd go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, no, 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 no. I know how to, I know how to argue that, you know, so, but it was way, way too late to go back and, you know, go back and go, damn it, I could have won that one. When you're smarter than everybody, it's, people are intimidated easily. He got picked on a lot. He looked funny and he didn't have the right clothes and not that he would even want them if he could have them, but, um, like we did Grease together. That's kind of a funny story. We, <laughs> he got the role of Sonny and I was given the role of Jan. During rehearsals, we're read, doing the first read through and then we realize that these two characters have to kiss and we both looked at each other and it was like, uh, you know, and then we like looked at the guy and so then I ended up doing cha-cha instead. So like, I was like, <laughs> like yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I know we're in the South, but um, this is not going to fly. <laughs> So <laughs> we definitely connected more than our younger sister. She's kind of a, <laughs> she's a different uh, person. I mean, she's really, um, she, she was problematic as a child and, you know, was in and out of institutions. And David and I and Julie, um, we never lived in a house. I mean, we all, we had, we lived in apartments, but, you know, we never had a home, like a house. We, I, that was just never lived in a house. Why was the family moving so much? Because my father couldn't keep a job. He started out selling women's clothing and then he got into chefing. Chefs are known for having notoriously bad tempers and just, uh, he, he just couldn't, he never got along with the managers and that's why we moved around all the time. He just, um, lack of intelligence and ego. I remember specifically there was one time that my mom and dad were fighting and my mother was so really angry at my dad and my dad pulled me in front of him so that she wouldn't hit him. And not that she, I didn't, I never saw them strike each other. I mean, I don't think that was ever a thing. I don't think they ever did that. But I remember that I was like his shield and I was like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, you know, um, yeah, there was bickering. It, it, no, everyone was sad. <laughs> I was a really angry kid. David was lucky. He had his own room. Uh, you know, I had to share the room with my crazy sister. And so David actually had, he could get away and he could close his door and he could be alone. And he, he, he spent a lot of time alone. And I think he was lonely. I mean, he was lonely. He didn't have any, you know, he didn't have a, a dad to, he, he couldn't really talk to my mom. He didn't feel like that bonding between them. I mean, he really kind of distanced himself from, from all of us. And, but again, I think it was, you know, self-perseverance, but it just must've been fucking awful, honestly. And I do remember him getting so angry one time, he punched his hand through the window. I remember that being a scary thing. Like he was so, I think there was a lot of pent up emotion that we didn't understand or know how to deal with. Did you ever think you or David to ever think about running away? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that, yes. <laughs> that was. I mean, I actually, 
I ran away as a, as a little kid under my bed. Um, I packed a bag and, you know, the hobo bag and just went under my bed with my bag. That was where, you know, that was the only place I knew at age six to go. And I'm, I'm sure that David felt the same way. I'm probably even more so than me. Cause I mean, that poor guy was in a, a household of three females and, uh, desperately longing for a relationship with his father, a male person to bond with. And, you know, he didn't have it. I was the closest thing to a brother that he had. (laughs) I mean, my dad was, he was in and out. He wasn't a constant. So when they got divorced, we didn't even know he was leaving for good. You know, we didn't know. He told my mom that he just needed to go, quote unquote, find himself. And she said, you know what? take whatever time you need, but just get your ass back here. And he said, of course. And then that was it. He never came back. My mom, God bless her. She, she did the very best that she could. And I think she did an amazing job in the sense that she had three small kids, no real job at the time that he left. And, you know, she had to figure things out really fast. Um, And she was able to do it. We got our clothing and our uh, furniture from Salvation Army, and she had to make dinner for all the kids and make sure we did our homework and all of those things. And we were shitty kids, you know, we were, we were kids. So we would give her a hard time. And she just, at, at some point, she was just so exhausted that she just couldn't deal with us or she would break down and she'd go inside because she didn't want to be around us or we'd be bickering. And it was a pretty shitty existence for her. And somehow she was able to get us into programs and so that we could still have some culture and, uh, you know, have some fun. <laughs> this is, Hanukkah is not a real big deal, but as a kid, you're around all these kids that are celebrating Christmas and out playing with all their stuff. And I remember she had nothing. She had no money. Uh, I mean, zero money to get presents. And she had gone to a store and she asked the manager if they had any broken toys or any any toys that wouldn't be able to sell that she could have so that we could have something to open up. And that Hanukkah that year, I got a deflated football. <laughs> it had a hole in it or something. And, and so it, you couldn't even blow it up. Um, so she, she did a really amazing job for, with, with what she had. And for her to, to have to walk in and kind of beg for some malfunctioning toys <laughs> to give to her kids it was really sad, and she, um, but she did it. Your mom's a rock star. Yeah, no, she is. My mom actually paid for us to get fake IDs. David needed one so that he could perform at these clubs, and he wasn't of age. And I, I remember I got one so that I could go see him. Uh, my mom used to say to me, she'd say, she'd say, David, never run down the hallway with a lollipop in your mouth. Always use a knife. <laughs> I I have one of those um, hip liberal moms who read about every once in a while, and this is a true story. She honestly said to me, uh, David, now I know you're bound to be curious about drugs, and I know you're going to want to experiment with them, but I just don't want you to take them with your peers where something can go wrong. If if you're curious about drugs and you come home and you take them in front of me where I can make sure nothing goes wrong, this is true. um, Last week I tripped with my mom. No, it was great. We we just watched the Weather Channel on it for like 11 hours. It was great. And then the worst thing possible happened. 
my dad came home and he hung up his hat and coat on the little coat up there and said, hi honey, I'm home. And my mom just started laughing and pointing at him and making small dick jokes. <laughs> My father's been dead for 11 years. He died in crypt death when he was only 32. You know, unfortunately for him, and I feel really awful that I probably had something to do with this too, my mother kind of threw him into, well, you're the man of the household now. You know, it was really unfair. <laughs> you know, he was still a kid. And I mean, I was his kid's sister. I wanted to be just like him. He was a protector. I mean, he, he there were things that he did that every once in a while would just like, because I never really thought that he liked me. There were these kids that were trying to steal my bike and he, he was small. He was way small and only one person and these two kids and he got them to give my, me my bike back and he protected me. And it was, I'd never seen him. I'd never seen him do that before. I mean, he became my freaking hero after that. It just made me fall in love with him even more. So when he started performing, I think I probably embarrassed him because I would laugh you know, way harder than anybody needed to at any joke, you know, and that was not good. <laughs> when you see him do stand up, can you say, oh, that's not David, that's David? No, 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 no. When he does stand up, that is all David, uh, a thousand percent. No, it's, a, it's, he very rarely just tells a, a story that didn't happen. It's mostly true life and his observations. David's thing, his thing, I mean, for real, is being, brutally honest. He doesn't lie. He doesn't sugarcoat shit. He prides himself on that and as well he should. But sometimes that delivery to somebody can be brutal and it can be harsh. And so people could think it's condescending. And sometimes it is. Here's a perfect example. If you say something and you know, I know that you mean it as a joke. I don't necessarily think it's that funny, but I'm going to go, yeah, yeah, okay, and give like a chuckle because I don't want you to feel bad. It sucks when you tell a joke and the other person is just, there's no reaction whatsoever. David will do that. And he won't, like, he won't even be kind in that sense to make the other person feel good or better or spare their feelings. And he just, and then you just leave them there hanging and they feel stupid. That's what he does because he's so true to himself. But he does that all the time, and he does it to me. My wife and I will go, God damn it, he's being a dick. Now I call him out on it. I mean, I call him out on it all the time. I'm like, David, why are you being such a dick? I mean, just like, what, you know, and he'll be, he'll go, sorry. And then you kind of have to pull him out sometimes. I will say this. Since Marlo has been born, now you're seeing all sorts of empathy, and you're seeing he's really softened up, and he's become just a better emotional being. And it's been amazing. It's like, oh my God, like I, you know, I'm closer with him now than I ever have been. And I think it is 99.9% to do with being a dad. Last question, your dad is, well, this isn't a question, but you know, your dad is still alive. This isn't a Maury Povich moment. I'm just. <laughs> what? He's in New York. He's alive. <laughs> do you want to know what happens to your dad? Oh, I connected with him and I saw him maybe 13 or 14 years ago. The reason I got together with him was to tell him that you're off the hook for me because I actually turned out pretty okay. And I don't know that I would have turned out this great had you stayed. Wow. That's amazing, by the way. You need to hear that's amazing. (laughs) Thanks. That was the last time I 
I saw him and, uh, and I immediately said to David, you know, this is what our meeting was. Did he ask about David? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, my, the irony of David being fake, you don't, you don't get it. My father name dropped like no one I've ever met before. And they were all lies. And it was always about famous people. And he, he fucking turns his back on us. And then he's got this famous son who would have fucking done anything for this guy. Like, it's just the irony is just so amazing. Would you guys go to his funeral? No, I probably wouldn't go to his funeral. No, I probably wouldn't. No. And he wouldn't. I would. I mean, I'm speaking for him, but I'm also pretty, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm 100% sure that he would say no. <laughs> Do you think he's still angry? Oh, God. This is, um, it's interesting. I, I think that, um, all right, I got to think about this. Um, yeah, probably a little. Yeah, I think he's less angry, but he's still angry. There's still some wounds. He'll always have them. It's like this. We were both in the car accident, but he had much worse injuries than I than I sustained. We've all learned how to fill that hole with something. It's not the same, but it is something that feeds us nonetheless. Do you think David's work is that soul filler? Absolutely. I mean, I think I think it, I think it's always been that. And if it wasn't, he would stop. It's inaccurate to draw a line between how and with whom we start to what we become. It's worse than inaccurate. It's not fair. Only thinking makes it so. Let's just say it is funny, though, how similar endings and beginnings look. And it's easy to mix the two. Unless, maybe, one gets eye surgery. (laughs) But I digress. Thankfully, though, there are still more parts to David's process. And, full disclosure, I definitely counted on this assembly to stir some echoes. Next up on David's echo are frenemies and acts of artistic polygamy. (laughs) Oh, and more first-time callers into the assembly. When in a pandemic. On the next part of assembly. I thought you were brave to include the audience. That's part of the process. You know, it's my audience, so they're, they're going to be respectful. He would say something like, well, they're all fucking idiots. You know what I mean? It's like, well, not every one of them is a fucking idiot. I'm there. And he's going, well, yeah, you know, you're kind of an idiot right now. Um, is it too simple to say David loves and doesn't love the audience? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Did I tell you the story? Odenkirk and Cry. Oh, my God. I blame you, though. I will take that blame because it's one of the greatest things that ever happened in comedy. Yeah, I'm writing a memoir, so I'm actually writing about this time in my life a lot lately. Oh, how cool. So this is like a scrimmage. Good. (laughs) Okay. Assembly is created and produced by me, Robert Malazzo. Original music for this season is by Fred Armisen. The Assembly theme is by A&R. Visit our website, theassemblypodcast.com. Send any questions, comments you have. You can also suggest an assembly you'd like me to feature on the show. And of course, you can contribute there. Your contributions are incredibly appreciated. I promise. Assembly is a presentation of the Modern School of Film. Mm -hmm.